Hello and welcome to the Robert A. Heinlein Book Club. In this episode, I will uh, begin my coverage of the post-World uh, War II work by Heinlein. And to start with that, um, before I get to Rocket Ship Galileo, which really is the first major work we're going to look at, um, I need to talk about a couple of short stories that were written sometime around uh, Rocket Ship Galileo. Um, but uh, were not published till later in his life. Um, so was I going to do Free Men first? I think I was, but I but I pulled a bathroom of her own. So it doesn't matter. We'll, we'll look at a bathroom of her own first. Um, this was originally published in 1980, towards the end of his life, uh, in a collection of just like assorted other short short fiction that he 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 wrote. Uh, it wasn't published earlier, but. Um, I have this being written around 1946, which would have been about the time that Rocket Ship Galileo was being put to paper. Um, so this is actually a pretty interesting story. It seems to me anyways. Um, it is uh, not science fiction. It is uh, really nothing. You can't even squint and see it as a science fiction story. It's uh, about a political campaign in a local, just like a local town. Um, set pretty much in the time it was written in the post-war period and really centering around the issue of of housing and how like political machines sort of worked at the time. So the, the, those are maybe the two themes that are at the heart of it. But it's also a story that Heinlein liked to write where you have women um, who maybe, you know, are coming at things for different reasons than men like the, our, our female character here is running for the same office as our narrator and a, and a third guy um but uh maybe for different reasons but she's fully competent right i mean i think that's kind of part of heinlein's uh, approach to women is that they're always like presented as as competent and equal of men in, in basic ability and i think that's the case here although there is gendered politics still going on in this story particularly in how um, she is primarily interested in in housing and wanting to have um, big homes so the the historical context of this i mean it's in the title right a bathroom of her own before World War II, working class people tended to still live in like tenement style homes, right? Um, or if they lived in farms, they might have like homes that they built themselves um, that, you know, might not have be, might just be one or two rooms. People uh, lived together, shared space. That's certainly the case in the tenements in, in the city's spaces. So there was... Um, um, and then during World War II, there was no like building of new housing, like all all national production was sent towards the army and towards the military so what we have then after the war is this housing shortage and we had a bunch of like the housing that was there was outdated and not really suitable for for families especially during the great depression so another part of the context is during the great depression you had this big union drive you have the new deal policies you have social security you have all the money from people saved up checks during the army you know you serve three four years in the military and you don't have any really expenses so you have all that money saved up 
and you have enough to buy a home. So the and then there was this greater dream of of having a home of their own, right? Having the picket fence uh, image of the home, right? Like you know, two bedrooms, a garage in the suburbs, a little bit of land for yourself. Now, obviously, in every geographical space, it wasn't possible to do that. But you had the creation of new suburban spaces in the outskirts of cities that allowed people to have these types of homes. And after the war, there was that building boom to feed, uh, to you know, to put pe veterans in those homes, right? It's it was kind of the reinterpretation or reimagination of, of almost the yeoman farmer uh, dream in in a in industrial American context, where instead of the, the farm and being an independent farmer, you were like working in a factory or working in an office, and then coming home to to the the picket fence uh, suburban house, which you can now afford thanks to the changing economic circumstances, the the American economic hegemony, dollar hegemony. Uh, is part of that. Uh, the rest of the world is busted uh, in various ways and dealing with their own housing crisis in, in other ways. Uh, we could actually compare this to what the Soviet Union was doing. Heinlein in the introduction to this story, which was in the original publication, he kind of makes a stab at Soviet housing, but, but you know, the Soviets were doing the same sort of thing where they put so much of their national energy in the late 40s and 50s into building construction because that's what people needed, right? So much of Russia was was destroyed by the war and there was this demand for housing. So by the Khrushchev years, you had these, these huge apartment complexes built up, which weren't that pretty to look at, but they're no worse off than I think some of the late capitalist housing we get or the public housing we get in America. But it, it was a need. It was, it was meeting a need as, as efficiently as possible. Now, in America, that need was tied to this ideology i think more than maybe in other places but you know you have this huge building boom um and that's you know and architectural historians can kind of look at that and art historians have looked at the types of, of construction we get in this time period um but that's the context of this so our main character um really is um is this is francis because francis Frances Nelson, that's uh, the character's name. Frances Nelson is, uh, she, she runs for this like city council position on this platform of, of, of policies that will encourage housing, right? So our narrator, so anyway, the two main candidates are this guy McNye and then Frances Nelson and Nelson ends up winning at the end, right? So she, she defeats the two men. So that's uh, where this kind of uh, female competence comes into play. Right. And she's being interrogated throughout the story, even by our narrator, as, you know, do you really have a policy? Are you just like a housewife? Do you really have, uh, you know, an agenda? Can you really do this? Do you really understand the policies of it? And she sort of admits she doesn't, but she 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 apparently learns it as she she goes along. But there is a lot of questioning of her credentials here and Heinlein, you know, presents that I think fairly realistically how women at the time would have been presented if you know been interrogated if they were into politics at the time you know um, whether national or local I don't think there were that many women in national politics um, in the 1940s maybe in the local level there was more of them but I imagine they would have been interrogated much the same way for instance take this conversation where um, 
The narrator says, uh, keep your shirt on. Me, I'm sleeping in leaky tractor trailer. I'm strong for plenty of housing, but how do you propose to get it? How? Don't be silly. I'll measure back the measures that push it, end quote. So right there you have the typical line given by people to politicians whose ideas they, they don't want to take seriously. As you say, like, how are you going to do it, right? How are you going to pay for it? I guess that's that's what we get nowadays in political discourse, right? Um, how are you going to pay for it, even though the U.S. government makes its own money? You know, the question is, how are you going to pay? And we're sitting on this piles of wealth. You know, the, the rich are obscenely rich these days. Um, but she just says, I'll, I'll push for policies. I'll support it. So she doesn't really have a specific answer, right? But do you really need that? Right. It's like a little bit of research. Your staff can find that out. I think sometimes we we expect um, a certain type of competence from politicians when it's not the kind of competence we need. Right. We don't need the technocratic competence. We don't need the, the guy who ran a business. We don't need that kind of competence. We need competence in terms of how people can apply and use political power and win and maintain and expand political power to achieve ends, right? Whether they know how to manage a budget, whether they know how to manage a business, whether they know how to put people to work, all this nonsense you have in political discourse then and, and apparently, uh, well, now and apparently back then too, is, is kind of not that important, right? I think we emphasize too much competence and that's why we get these kind of cynical figures who... Um, you know, see see everything very technocratically and don't see things in terms of how do you actually achieve and maintain power. It's like it's been my complaint about American politics. But anyways, let's go on with this conversation, this back and forth. So he, after she says, I'll just back the measures that push it, he replies, such as, do you think the city ought to get into the building business? Or should it be strictly private enterprise? Should we sell bonds and, refi and finance new homes, limited veterans, or will you help me too? Heads of families only, or do you want to cut yourself in on it? How about prefabrication? Can we do everything you want under the building code that was written for 1911? I paused for breath. Well, and then she replies, you're just being nasty. And he is in a way. He's being a bit unreasonable because first of all, yeah, why not both? Why not all that shit, right? It's... It's like, it's like he's trying to do the gotcha, like on the debate stage. Where it's like, well, do you know this particular nerdy thing that I know? No. Well, then you're obviously not qualified to be, to be president, or to be congressman, or to be whatever, right? Um, now, as for these actual policies, it's like, yeah, well, I'll take a little bit of all of that. Yeah, should the government be in the building business? Yeah, if there's a housing shortage, yeah, I, I think it should be. If rents are going up higher than the prices of mortgages. Yeah, the government should do something about the supply problem, right? If if there's a limit of if there's not enough affordable housing because the market doesn't allow that, yeah, the government should be involved in in the building business to some degree. I don't know what that might look like, but that's not really uh, those details are what you have staff for. That's details what the government is supposed to work out. Should it strictly be private enterprise? Well, no, not if you're having government involved. But yeah, we should encourage private in investment too in, in affordable housing. Should we sell bonds and finance new homes? Sure. Limited to veterans? Well, I, I don't know if we'd want to limit it to veterans. Um, that's certainly something that's on the mind in the post-war period, right? Like, should veterans get dibs? Of course. Black Americans didn't have the same access to homes that white veterans had. So it's discriminatory. It's not something that's mentioned in this story, obviously, but we can think about it. Uh, prefabrication? Sure. Actually, uh, 
my my father that's like you know i was raised in a in a in a town that had a big prefab uh um home company um uh wassa homes it was i think they were, they were pretty famous at the time i don't think they're a big company anymore but that's where my dad worked that's what put food on the table for the most part and that was uh a um they worked on pre they made they, they did prefabrication um you know put it put it together parts of the home in the factory and then move it to site right um build change the building code yeah why not it's, it's not like these are gotcha questions that's my point about this it's it's these aren't you know he's just trying to tease out oh you don't know the building code from 1911 how how dare you talk about this it's like and, th and this happens all the time in politics i think it's where it's like oh you don't know about uh um, you don't know who the governor of, or the, the governor of some province in, in China is? Well, how dare you talk to talk about foreign policy? Uh, this is the resort of really odious people. It's like, you say like, you didn't read as many books as me, or, or you're not an expert in this thing. It's like, yeah, give me the job and I'll hire you if you're so expert on this. You can do it, but I'm going to have the political will to get, to get it done. So, um, that's what I kind of appreciate about this story is, uh, it does interrogate a little bit like what are political what we value in a politician in a, in a degree now overall this story is very cynical about politics i think um our you know the back room dealing the shenanigans going on between the candidates the the corruption in the system and all that stuff is is exposed through the story in various degrees and of course heinlein ran for office back before he became a science fiction writer and uh, wasn't very successful. I think that was in 1938. And I think he was a supporter of, of Upton Sinclair uh, when he ran for governor on the, the EPIC platform. If you remember the EPIC platform and poverty in California, that was called. Um, so since Heinlein sort of worked on that campaign in some way, I don't know how integral he was in it. Um, but here's his policy. The, the state, this is during the Great Depression, of course, but um, so the plan called for state seizure of idle factories and farmlands where the owner had failed to pay property taxes. Okay. The government would then hire the unemployed to work on farms and the factories. Basically, this is uh, why should we have like poverty in the midst of, of abundance, right? If it's, that's a problem of demand, right? So if, if you need to get people get money in people's pockets right and the way you do that is you put them to work that's the whole idea of these work programs now, now that that work had other positive benefits right the wpa or whatever that they had other positive benefits. but the main thing was put people money in people's pockets uh so you also called for a state income tax a progressive income tax with the wealth being taxed at 30 percent um it would have increased inheritance tax uh, instituted a four percent tax on stock transfers um, government provided pensions for old, disabled, and widows. Uh, creation of three new government agencies. Um, but one, interestingly, California authority for money. Um, so this was used to finance uh, their authority for land and authority for production of the other two agencies he wanted to create. By issuing script to workers and issuing bonds for the purchases of lands, factories, and machineries. This isn't quite social credit, but it's it's it smells a little bit like social credit, right? It's like let's just issue money to people so they can um, 
invest. Now here it's more like it's like the startup capital, right? It's basically issuing a kind of state bond essentially to allow people to then get together and build a factory. It's it's like a this is the way to get to worker co-ops, right? It's like this has been proffered up as, an, as something that could be done where you take workers who've been friends unemployed like a, a factory has been shut down and you loan those workers as a group the money to buy the factory right and keep it working and keep those workers in, and then you create a worker owned industry out of that and then if you have enough of those you can show it as a better more sustainable fair system that's more economically resilient that maybe is uh not doesn't foster so much inequality um more um, more resistant to the recessions and things like that. So, um, I don't know. I don't know how much Highland was involved in it. Wikipedia here says, uh, he had a cynical view of policies from his experiences on the Upton Sinclair 1934 campaign for governor. He would have been quite young when he did that. He'd been in his, in his 20s. Um, but anyways, um, so there's a lot of, of nonsense in this campaign, but Francis's campaign was more grassroots and it was able to get support. And, um, eventually our narrator drops out cause he's going to lose and he's very sad about that, but he bet he backs off. He ends up getting his support to Francis joining her campaign. And then she eventually wins at the end. And then the story just sort of ends with success there. Um, now we don't get the details of how she actually like moves towards her policies. It's more just a reflection, I think, on politics as it as it really is. And I, and I think for that the story's fine. The story's pretty uh, interesting. Um, I think it's uh, worth perhaps checking out. I'm not going to say too much more about it, other than that it is it is kind of a fun little story. It's only about the audiobook's only like 45 minutes long or something, so it's a, it's a quick read. Um, and yeah, and, and have fun with it. Maybe it's like 15 or 20 pages. So for the next episode, I'll look at another story, which is kind of in a similar vein in that it is science fiction. I suppose it's, it's set in an America that's been taken over by a foreign power, not named. Um, but then it's about resistance. So, um, and resistance culture and it's called free men. And, and that is another, something that Heinlein liked to write about. I think it's a lot better than actually better than sixth column as a story of resistance because it is much just more brutal. It's, it's a more realistic story. It's not really science fiction. It's just given our current technology and social status or social relations. If we were to have a foreign occupation of the United States, what might the resistance to that, that look like? And, it, and it's more about like having freedom in chains right believing in the possibilities of freedom even if one is enchained and enslaved or uh under foreign occupation so we'll talk about that in the next episode so um that's gonna be it for now uh thanks for listening and i'll see you next time on the robert a Heinlein book club mm -hmm.